how about we don't try and make food perfect because it's not perfect, just like life's not perfect. If you're recycling, that's awesome. But you also need to look at all these other pieces and you don't have to be doing them perfectly. The first step is reduce, then reuse, then recycle. They are in order. Get inspired by people fighting to make this world better for everyone. This is Unwasted with Imperfect. Hello, and welcome back to the Unwasted podcast. I'm your host, Riley Brock, and it's my honor every week to talk with experts in food, health, sustainability, and generally making the world a better, tastier place. Today, we're going to explore how race and the environment are interconnected. Our guest is an environmental advocate and educator who writes about the intersection between racial justice and environmental justice. Her article in Vogue magazine titled Why Every Environmentalist Should Be Anti-Racist is a must read to understand the challenges and opportunities of 2020. It's my honor to have her with us here today. Leah Thomas, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Super pumped to be here. It's, it's a pleasure. I'm really excited for this conversation. You know, when you meet somebody for the first time, how do you describe what you do? You know, one of the best parts about being a writer is I get to kind of make up words that I really <laughs> like. So I've been describing myself as an eco-communicator because I feel like that's what I do. I studied environmental science and policy, and I love to write, and I love to talk about those things. So I like to describe myself as an activist and an eco-communicator, which is just a fancy way of saying I love to talk about the earth. Eco-communicator. What a great Mm -hmm. term. I love that. That's great. Um, For folks who aren't familiar with it, what is intersectional environmentalism, and why should more people care about it? Yeah, so I learned about intersectional theory when I was in college, actually, around 2014, 2015, because I heard of something called intersectional feminism. And intersectional theory was created by Kimberly Crenshaw, this really amazing African-American lawyer and one of the pioneers of critical race theory. And intersectional theory just looks at all the ways different parts of someone's identity from race to class to culture, religion, gender, on and on and on might overlap and influence the way someone experiences different prejudices or privileges. And after a while, I realized if my feminism was intersectional, my environmentalism should also be intersectional. And I felt like that was just a really big missing piece of the environmental movement, examining the ways that someone's identity could impact their experience with the world around them. Um, So intersectional environmentalism is a type of environmentalism that does just that. It doesn't ignore the bits and pieces of someone's identity. And instead, it amplifies the voices and efforts of people who are often unheard in this movement. And it realizes the ways in which all these overlapping identities plays a really major role in someone's experience with nature. Amazing. I, that's, re- that's really important. Uh, can you share some examples of how communities of color are disproportionately bear the brunt of environmental is- issues like climate change or pollution? Absolutely. I think that's what scared me the most, to be honest, when I was in, when I was taking environmental science and policy classes. I think I was the only Black person in my class. So, and my, we had a, I went to a really small school, but I was the only Black person. And when we were flipping through books and we would just say, it would just be very simple, like, oh, yeah, and by the way, there's all these environmental policies, and, uh, you know, black and brown people are disproportionately impacted by all of the environmental injustices. Okay, turn the page. And it wasn't something where we would stop and sit and say, wait, 
Okay, so it's not just exposure to poor air quality, which is bad in and of itself, but it's also exposure to poor water quality. And in the case of Flint, Michigan, like children are literally drinking water with lead in it, which is really, really scary. And then also proximity to toxic waste sites and landfills. Oh. And then also you go on and on, like exposure to green spaces and places to recreate are unfortunately disproportionate to who gets to experience it and that what makes it the the factor, the determining factor is race. And of course, we can also talk about class and we can talk about mountain communities that are primarily white and impacted by environmental injustices. Um, But generally speaking, almost all of the environmental injustices in the United States are um, disproportionately impacting communities of color, which is very alarming. That's that's wild. Um, and yeah, that's super important to think about. And I love what you brought up that there are multiple layers to it, that it, it's rarely just one thing. Yeah. I, my, my friend Olympia Asset of, of Supermarket in Los Angeles talks a lot about how when you look at food deserts, they're not just food deserts. They're often also design deserts, art deserts, entrepreneurship deserts. Like these injustices rarely come in just one. It's not just like, oh, that area has bad water quality. It's like if they're, yeah. not, if they're not paying attention to the water, it's quite likely they're also not prioritizing food, economic opportunities, educational opportunities. Like they, they rarely come in, in just one one-off. Oh, that's a bad outcome. Like too bad. Absolutely. And I think that's something that's been frustrating to me over the years because I'll have a lot of people and sometimes they're very, you know, nice, well-intentioned environmentalists who happen to just be white. And when I bring up the topic of race, they're like, no, 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 Leah, relax. This is actually, this is like a wealth issue. This is wealth inequality through and through. This has nothing to do with race. And I'm like, well, the theory of intersectionality actually means that there are these overlapping things. And I think the more we're able to see that, the more we can, as environmentalists, kind of see why we should also be social justice advocates, because all of these things overlap and intersect. And sometimes one of those things might play a bigger role, um, like race, for example, but it could also be, like you said, an education issue, an economic issue. It's rarely just one Hmm. issue. Yeah. I think that nuance is important. To, if you really want to understand much of solving these issues, you got to respect the nuance. That, that's my personal take. Um, but yeah. I, I, I definitely resonate with what you just said. I mean, I'm curious to unpack your argument a bit there. You know, I think I, I personally probably agree with you, but for the sake of understanding it better, what do you say to someone that says, no, no, Leah, this is really just an economic issue. Like race doesn't, has nothing to do with it. Like, how do you, how do you respond to that? Hmm. How do I respond to that? I would ask, like, why? Why for them are they able to take race out of the equation when so many other people cannot? So I think whenever I hear someone say that something isn't a race issue, it's usually because they haven't had to consider race as an issue in the conversation about how they're experiencing the world around them. So I would instead kind of ask them, like, why do you not? consider race in these issues or yeah so because like I said it's rarely just one thing because even if they want to focus on economics we can get into that and say okay well why are all of these different policies also disproportionately impacting people of color and then 
Yeah. So I would get back to that. But honestly, I think whenever people do try to say that something is an economic issue, it's masking the fact that they don't want to address privilege and also address the ways that race might actually play a really, really large role in how people are experiencing injustices. Because if they have to acknowledge the fact that it's race, if they focus on economics, they could say like, see, I'm included in this story because Mm. I could be poor. I could be rich. I, you know, money is something that I feel like I can be in this story. But when it comes to race, like, why do they suddenly feel like I'm not a part of this narrative if it's about race, but if it's about money, then I could maybe be a part of this, maybe relate to it. But I'm like, you could also relate to it when we're talking about race. But if you're white, maybe just think about how being white impacts how you experience the world around you. So usually it's, it's a little bit of um, privilege when that question comes up. Definitely. Uh, you know, well said. I, I think it's been interesting. I've noticed this year, there's been this resurgence of this, um, the kind of colorblindness movement. Mm-hmm. Like people want to think we're colorblind. I've noticed I'm seeing that in the discourse. I'm seeing it in comments, threads. I'm seeing it even in, in, in the news that people people think or want to think that we're colorblind in 2020. And you brought up an interesting point earlier that the environmental movement is overwhelmingly white, at least as it exists now, especially in liberal progressive circles. It's often wealthy white elites that are saying what environmental policy should or shouldn't be. And they're disproportionately the ones that have the voices and the platforms and the podcasts and the documentaries and all that. I, I'm curious, like to someone that says, Hey, you know, environmentalism is, is colorblind or, or really sh- uh, should be like, how do you, how do you respond to that? That's stupid. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> End of podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny. I think, and I was tricked into this narrative. I used to think when I was in college in order to be an environmentalist, I needed to be, white and small and have an Instagram aesthetic where I'm only wearing like expensive ethical clothing and I must have all of these like mason jars and Tupperware and and then I would elevate to the status of like being peak environmentalist and that's so wrong because Mm. the environmentalism that we have today like as a environmental scientist of course you know I believe in ecosystems ecology and all the incredible science that's been able to open up all of our eyes as environmentalists but honestly we would not be able to have the environmentalism that we have today without cultural appropriation and a lack of acknowledgement of how indigenous cultures across the world and globally have had better relationships with the land that have been able to inform scientists of how ecosystems ecology you know, works and how regenerative agriculture practices are actually, you know, amazing. And sometimes it's like they reinvent the wheel with something called Columbusing. Mm. But basically, indigenous people have been doing this work for a long time and have managed not to destroy, um, you know, the earth through agriculture in many, many ways. So I find that kind of funny, because a lot of our ideals as environmentalists are actually coming from black and brown traditions globally, but then they're getting rid of the black and brownness and reinventing it with science and saying, look, we've discovered this regenerative way of being when they, without giving credit to other people. Or even when you look at the environmental movement, um, I always like to point out that the civil rights movement of the early 60s and late 60s happened right before the environmental movement, which led to the creation of the Clean Water Act, Clean Air Act, the creation of the EPA. Yeah. It was largely white. Who 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 did they get those ideas from to do sit-ins? Who did they 
who did environmentalists get those ideas from? Oh, oh, maybe the civil rights movement that was happening at the same time. Mm. But instead of actually teaming up with people who were fighting for civil rights, they made the mistake that a lot of environmentalists are doing now, not realizing the ways in which the environmental movement has learned from, appropriated from the struggles or the traditions of black and brown people, but then just left them out of it. Even though we wouldn't have been able to have, in my opinion, the first Earth Day or the creation of the Environmental Protection Agency without black and brown people advocating for their civil rights in the 60s. So I think what we need to do differently now is instead realize the ways that the environmentalism that we have today was built off the backs of so many black and brown people globally. Wow, really well said. Uh, uh, that term Columbusing is, is something I hadn't actually heard before, but I think it really summarizes it pretty well, huh? It, it sounds like it's basically kind of whitewashing an idea that existed before you and saying, oh, look, we've discovered this new way of doing things. It's like, no, people were doing that before. They just didn't yeah. look like you. Wow. And not only that, and then they'll say, and then we made the certification that is not, you know, it's going to be really difficult for the people who created this to get the certification because of access issues. And I'm all for, you know, organic food, the regenerative organic, you know, movement that's coming up and the certification that was created. I think it's amazing, but I don't think, I think there are a lot of hooks to kind of jump or whatever the phrase is to be able to have access to those certifications. So sometimes it can be very, very exclusive. Yep. No, a hundred percent. Um, you know, I, I guess just one one book that comes to mind. I'm working my way through the book, uh, 1491, right now. Have you read that one or heard about it? It's basically no, it's about pre-Columbus uh, native cultures, and basically the author mm-hmm. is this anthropologist, but he takes this pretty sprawling take on disproving the idea that oh, there was nothing really happening in the Americas before white people arrived, and digs <laughs> into depth, especially around the agricultural and ecological traditions that were very vibrant and really sophisticated. Like there were very mm-hmm. big, sophisticated, nuanced metropolitan areas. You know, even in areas like like you know everyone thinks of the Aztecs, but like basically outside of like Kansas City. City. There was this mm. enormous society living, the Cahokia, I believe. Uh, oh, yeah, they had, the Cahokia. Yeah, That's exactly. Actually, I'm from Missouri, um, and can't. Yeah, I've been to the Cahokia Mountains. Amazing. So yeah. I now I now want to go because of this book, and I had no idea it was never in my history books growing up. But they had really sophisticated, you know, flood and water management practices, and all these mm-hmm. things. That, I think before that we assumed, oh no, this is something that like Western Europeans figured out how to do. And it's like this, I love what you're saying because it encourages us and enables us to start to unpack some of these assumptions that is it really true that only Western Europeans knew how to do complex agriculture or even regenerative agriculture, manage water, manage floodplains, balance Mm -hmm. wetlands, like all these crucial ecological challenges we're facing to this day. Yeah, I, I just love this idea of like, let's get in touch with the origins of them. And it sounds like kind of part of your claim is um, cite your sources. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Cite your sources. And I think people for a long, long time thought they didn't need to cite, you know, the voices of people of color, because in many ways, they didn't have to, they could get away with stealing these ideas and not acknowledging them and putting their own word on it and defining it for themselves. But um And kind of a side tangent, that's why I always reference Kimberly Crenshaw, who's the creator of intersectional theory, because when I learned about intersectional feminism, I learned about it through white women, my Mm. really incredible white women friends in college that were saying, Leah, 
you know, mainstream feminism, this isn't it. They're not inclusive of black women. Have you heard of intersectional feminism? And, you know, my white woke friends showed me it. But then I didn't know that intersectional theory was created by a black woman until two months ago when I started thinking about intersectional environmentalism and I wanted to make sure I was citing my sources properly. So I went four years of my life not realizing that something that is so essential to my being and just the work that I do was actually created by another black woman. And I never Mm. want, like, I don't want that to continue happening. I want people to know that there are people of color who have created and coined some incredible things that influence the way that we, you know, do environmentalism. Yeah. Uh, really well said. I don't, I don't want to keep going on tangents, but one thing that came up as you said that was I've, I've had a similar realization around pride month recently uh, Mm. that the pride month I grew up with in the Bay area was a overwhelmingly wealthy, privileged white event where basically people took it as a day to like get drunk and dress up and party in the streets and, you know, not to throw shade on that, like that I guess has its time and place. But uh, the more I learned about the history of it, it started as uh, not a parade, not even a protest, but a riot against violence against um, queer and trans people. And it was in large part led by black queer and trans leaders in New York City. And I had no idea. That was never taught to me. Uh, And obviously, it's no one's burden to teach that to me. But when I learned that, it made me, again, just resonate with what you just said, that uh, it's really important to get back to like the origin. What are the origins of some of these ideas? And are we really giving credit to the people that that pioneered them? Are we giving credit to the people that are like convenient and packaged the way that like mainstream society kind of wants these, you know, quote unquote heroes or pioneers to look? Exactly. And it happens over and over again, another tangent, and then I'll stop. But even in the way, even in the way that people package civil rights and the fight for civil rights, people act, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. was so incredible, but a lot of liberals unfortunately weaponize Martin Luther King Jr. to black people when telling them the way that they should be protesting and advocating for their own like civil rights and right to live. And they don't remember if they look at the statistics, over 60% of Americans, white Americans, didn't approve and thought that Martin Luther King Jr. was too radical during the civil rights movement. So for people to say now, like, this is how you should be behaving in this way, like your leader, like our beloved leader, Martin Luther King Jr., but they don't realize that people also disapproved of him during that time. And I feel like sometimes they'll water down our leaders and our methods in a way that's more pleasing to them, and it's not okay, and they need to get down to the history and realize, yeah, even when Martin Luther King Jr. was advocating for literally basic human rights for Black people, they killed him. Like, this is not a happy, happy story. Like they killed him. And that message in many ways was silence. And that's why we're still fighting for it today. But yeah, just agreeing with everything that you said. Really great point. I, all right, my last tangent, because I have so many great questions I want to get to. But what, what you just said uh, reminded me, I'm, re- I'm working my way through the new Jim Crow right now by Michelle Alexander. And I was reading a paragraph about the 60s, and it was talking about police brutality and the protests that were going on then. And it sounded like it could have been about today. And basically, uh, this governor said, well, if people protested in a different way, police brutality wouldn't be an issue. So people have been making this claim that, oh, you just need, you're too radical. You just need to tone it down. 
as long as this debate's been around. So I, I do think it's important to like, let's know our history and let's remember that. Yeah. Like you said, the, people have always said, Oh no, that's too much. Like we should just like yeah. stop and like be grateful for what we have now. It's like, that's not how progress works, but no, yeah. I, I really, <laughs> I really appreciate you bringing attention to that it's so important. Um, I want to get into your Vogue piece. Uh, I really think this is a, a seminal piece of 2020. It's how I first oh. learned about you. Um, can you explain how this article, why every environmentalist should be anti-racist? How did this article come to be and what do you hope people take away from it? Yeah, I, so a little bit about my background, I won't go too much into it, but um, I was a biology major at first, my freshman year in college, went to school at Chapman University in Orange County, born and raised in Missouri. Um, I went home for summer break um, and was thinking about what I wanted to change my major to, and I decided to change it to environmental science and policy. Around the same time I was making that decision, it was about two weeks before I was about to start my classes. And there, unfortunately, was a police shooting of an unarmed black teenager named Michael Brown about 10 minutes away from my house while I was home for summer break. So that happened. There were uprisings. It was very traumatizing. And then I had to go back to California to begin my classes as an environmental science and policy student. So those, that traumatic event and my introduction into environmental science was very enmeshed. And I had, I was hyper alert about issues of race when I was beginning my studies and just started wondering like, who is the Clean Air Act and Clean Water Act for if my community back home is being tear gassed and, you know, they're drowning in smoke and they are being met with violence and I felt so bad because I was in Southern California with access to beaches and mountains and it was so healing for me. And the more I read about how black and brown communities all over the country don't have the same access to that, it made me sick. And yeah. I just had to, I had to get involved and just, I was really passionate about environmental justice. And, um, I've always been in predominantly white environmental spaces. Um, and I don't know, something about 2020 being at home and the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement. And I just felt silence from the yeah. environmental community. I had worked at these prestigious environmental organizations and it broke my heart in so many ways to not have people that I stood beside to advocate for the protection of salmon not speak up about the protection of black people. And I just had this realization that, oh my God, either these environmentalists that I have stood beside in protest don't care about me and my life, or, you know, you know, I'm going to do one last thing. I'm going to extend this olive branch by basically posting the environmentalists for Black Lives Matter graphic I created my definition of intersectional environmentalism and also an intersectional environmentalist pledge so people could see why environmentalists should get involved with the Black Lives Matter movement. I posted that as an olive branch and as a last resort because I was just honestly so fed up with environmentalists not advocating for Black lives. Yeah. Um, but that's a long story. But I posted that graphic. Um, it went kind of viral. And then Vogue reached out about me writing a piece to expand upon why I um, made the graphic and that's basically what I talked about in it yeah. my experience with Michael Brown and Ferguson and how it was so instrumental to my environmentalism and just hoping that environmentalists could realize that you know black lives are also endangered like if we want to use the same environmental language 
then people are endangered. People are also animals and a part of this ecosystem. So environmentalists, this is our fight. And through intersectionality, hopefully it can help piece together why this is our fight. And that's why I wrote the piece. Wow. Super powerful. You know, you brought up something in the piece and I've seen it on your social media as well, that why this phrase, I can't breathe is, is really powerful, not just in the sense of police brutality, but in terms of other environmental and social injustices. Can you elaborate a bit on that? Yeah, I, I just got so mad. You know, I just got so mad. I was furloughed at the time. So I had a lot of time to sit with myself and just process a lot of things. And one thing I was thinking of, okay, so we are in a pandemic that is attacking the respiratory system and it's disproportionately killing um, black and brown people and it's making it harder for them to breathe. And then we also, when we look at particulate matter and air pollution and how it's disproportionately poor um, air quality in black and brown communities, and also it's causing respiratory illnesses um, and asthma and then I thought, whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, so we're making it hard for people to breathe through environmental policies that are unjust. And also, you know, asthma makes people more susceptible to potentially being affected by COVID. And then on top of that, the dying last words of so many Black and Brown people during police brutality or acts of violence are literally, I can't breathe. And that's been recorded multiple times. There's three different things, and I'm sure there's more that are making it hard for people to do the simplest thing of life, breathe. And it's not okay. So that's what I've been thinking about lately, um, of how people's dying last words are, I can't breathe. And us as environmentalists, we don't need to be a contributing factor into people's right to, to live. Yeah, absolutely. And what do you think environmentalists can learn from the Black Lives Matter movement? Everything. I'm just kidding. Um, (laughs) I think environmentalists can learn that sometimes hmm, there's the poem Harlem by Langston Hughes that I really like. I think that's what it's called. And it's the poem that goes, it has the line, like, what happens to a raisin in a sun? Does it dry up? Does it boil? You know, I'm paraphrasing. And I think people, when they look at the Black Lives Matter movement, they need to ask, like, what happens when people are oppressed and they're baking in the sun or the pressure of not being treated fairly? Like, what happens? What's the aftermath of people not feeling seen and heard and valued? And it is an uprising. And those uprisings, in my opinion, are very justifiable. And I think climate activists need to take note of this because these issues will continue to intersect because the more climate injustice, the more social injustice, including, you know, more refugee crises and also the displacement of people. And that's that raisin in the sun situation of a lot of people just baking and the pressure of social and environmental injustice. And I think people need to understand that this movement isn't going to go away if we ignore it, it's going to pop up in many different ways. And those many different ways that'll pop up, there will also be intersections that have to do with environmentalism. So I think environmentalists should listen and learn and say like, we need to help because if we don't, this will continue to happen. And yeah, it's not just going away. Yeah. Uh, uh, Something that 
strikes me as you're saying that is uh, this idea that kind of is similar to in ecology, you, you can't just ignore or wish away uh, an imbalance in the ecosystem, right? Like nature always wins, right? And if there's an yeah. imbalance, it's going to at some point correct itself. And mm-hmm. it's going to, uh, you know, you can't just pretend like, oh, this like flooding is not going to happen. Like the flooding is going to happen. And I, I feel like it's mm-hmm. actually, it's interestingly analogous to social justice where our, our racial social ecosystem is out of balance and out of whack right now. And you ignoring it is naive and is not, it's not helping like to your point you can't, you can't just be like, oh, not, not my issue. It'll, it'll be fine. <laughs> it'll go away if I just don't pay attention to it. But, but uh, that, that narrative is out there. And I, I think it's, it's important. I'm really glad you've touched on that because it's, we can't just ignore or wish these things away. You know, it's not, yeah. not going to help people. Exactly. Yeah. You know, you've written that we, we, one day we hope we don't need the term intersectional. What do you mean by this? I would be so happy because I think environmentalism should be inherently intersectional. I think for me, I was just getting fed up with the progressive quote unquote environmentalism that we have because the progressive environmentalism that we have somehow allowed for environmental racism to be as prevalent as it is today. So instead of just being a part of that environmentalism, I will separate myself and be a part of intersectional environmentalism until mainstream modern environmentalism incorporates intersectional theory into its definition. Um, So hopefully one day in the future, my biggest dream would be that when someone thinks of an environmentalist, they don't automatically envision a skinny, wealthy, white woman with mason jars and perfectly like tan clothing choices. And they instead are able to envision a diverse coalition of people um, from all races and cultures and gender identity and sexuality and abilities and realize like this is what environmentalism is. And then when people can think of an environmentalist and envision that, then it would be automatically intersectional. And why would we need the word anymore? I mean, I love it. I love the theory, but hopefully one day we won't need it. And not in a bad way, but because it's so deeply embedded into what it means to be an environmentalist. We won't need to say, I'm an intersectional environmentalist. We can just say proudly, I'm an environmentalist. Yeah, and it strikes me that at that point, the people that um, want a colorblind world could could finally say, oh, yeah, we, we seem to have achieved something like that. Yeah, see, exactly. Like, it's funny because colorblind theory, like maybe one day when yeah. intersectionality is baked in, those people who like the colorblindness would, yeah, they'd be able to say, yeah, see, I'm an environmentalist. And they would know that it's not colorblindness, but that it's already baked in. So that's when they can maybe not have to talk about it as much because it's already like there. Yeah. In it. Totally. Um, you know, for folks that want to learn more about these issues, do you have any um, book, uh, documentary, or podcast recommendations to, to really dig into the weeds of intersectional environmentalism? Um, I'm writing a book that should be coming out next year. Um, on intersectional environmentalism because there's not too much that exists with that specific terminology. But I think a good place for people to start is just to learn about environmental justice, like generally speaking, um, and also how a lot of different cultures have really awesome, rad relationships with the land. So for example, there's a book called Braiding Sweetgrass that I really like. There's a collection of poetry called um, Black Nature that I think is really informative of the Black experience when it comes to nature. And then also just 
I have a lot of resources, not to self-promote, but just um, on my website, intersectionalenvironmentalist.com. Basically, we break down different topics and um, also communities to make the, make it, we make it so easy. So if people go to the page and they want to explore like black identity and the environment, we tell you who you should follow on social media, what you should read from peer reviewed articles to personal essays to documentaries and film. And then we have different identity groups and we break it down and we have all the resources there. So I would recommend checking that out. And then hopefully this will be covered a lot more. It would be my biggest dream if environmental programs start incorporating this a little bit more. But until then, check out our website. Amazing. And if folks listening want to go out and make a difference in some of the topics we've talked about today, are there any kind of actions or starting points you'd recommend? Mm -hmm. I would say to check out the Intersectional Environmentalist Pledge. Um, because there's six or seven, I forget how many kind of tenants that people can use as a basis to get started with this journey. Um, Some things, everything that I put there is very intentional. So like one of the steps is to do the work yourself and not demand that, you know, people of color do the work for you because my inbox sometimes is flooded with people that are like, I'm white, teach me. And I'm like, teach yourself there's google and then we can have a very productive conversation but like yeah yeah, so do the work and i would say use that pledge as a starting place on how to do the work and honestly the simplest of things that can really make a difference is like diversify your social media feed and what you're reading because even if you follow maybe 10 of our council members for intersectional environmentalists you'll see the causes they're advocating for what nonprofits they support, and yeah, just reading people's personal essays as to why they care about what they care about. And something as simple as that can really help lead people um, down the path of becoming an intersectional environmentalist. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. Uh, diversifying uh, the feed, that's something I've uh, done this year. I'm embarrassed to say it took as long as this year to truly commit to doing it, and I've, I've really benefited from it. I think to just share a a personal aside, like I think as a younger person, I was unwilling or unable to do that because it felt uh, uncomfortable. You know, it was like, for me at that time, social media was this escape. And the Mm -hmm. idea of having all of these demands and accusations and articles and, you know, thought provoking headlines about injustice, like it was almost too much. It was like, I don't want to think about that right now. I'm just trying to like look at a sunset or a brunch or whatever. And as a younger person- As a younger person, I was okay with that. I think recently I've realized on some level that's, you know, I don't want to say more morally cowardly, but on some level it's, it's, it's ignoring stuff that I, I personally believe right now we can't frankly ignore. We should never yeah. have ignored and we can't afford to keep ignoring it, especially uh, white people like me can't just look away because it's uncomfortable. Like that is, yeah. I, I have arrived at a point where I think that's unacceptable and I'm, I'm glad that it's, it seems to be changing. Like the winds of change are in the air that folks are realizing like, no, we got to diversify the feeds. We got to listen to these voices that have been making claims and, and asks and demands for decades, if not centuries. Uh, and, and like, now's a great time to start paying attention. If you weren't paying attention yeah. before, now is a perfect time to start. Exactly. And um, I think people will find there's just that initial hard work, you know, there's that initial hurdle to kind of get over like the ego or the fragility, 
fragility. It's hard. Like yeah. it is really hard. I've had a lot of white friends who have like almost an identity crisis when they realize like, Oh crap, this is what I've been missing my whole life. Like this yes. is what people go through. There's a lot of guilt associated with that reckoning. But I think once people get over that initial hurdle, it won't be as like triggering every time you see that headline. And then you'll start realizing like, Oh my God, there are people who live with this every day of their lives. And these headlines are actually about their people. So they might actually be more triggered than I am as a white person reading this headline about black death. So I think after that initial discomfort, it gets easier and it just becomes a part of life. And it's not always going to be incredibly triggering or trigger like defensiveness or guilt. It'll get easier. And I just hope people know that, you know, learning and growth, it's never, it's never easy. And if it, if it were, I think life would be pretty boring after all. So, yeah, that's, that's really well said. What you said, I resonated with uh, the idea that if it's upsetting to you as a news headline, be empathetic and think how upsetting it must be to be a lived reality day after Mm -hmm. day. Like that really stuck with me, what you just said. Um, You know, talking about the future, where do you hope to see the environmental movement go? I want it to be diverse. Um, I know that's really silly to say, but yeah, I really hope because I love conservation and I don't, when I'm saying that I'm advocating for intersectionality, I'm not saying I want conservation work to like disappear, but I want, you know, addressing racial inequality and injustice to be as big as like the conservation fight and for it to make sense as much as conservation does in the context of environmentalism. So I no longer want to have to get DMs from people that are telling me their stories about, well, well, DMs from people telling me about how their professor told them that racism wasn't a part of environmentalism or DMs from people that are saying they work at these major conservation organizations or sustainability organizations and that they're on the verge of quitting because they just are being exploited or people aren't listening to how their identity is such a big part. So I would hope at the bare minimum in the future, the case will be made and there will be no questioning just like with conservation of like, oh, we should consider race and environmental justice. The fight for it should be as big as the conservation fight because they're all very important. Um, So that's where I would hope things would go in the next, like, you know, quickly, but hopefully in the next 10 years. Yeah. Amazing. Uh, I feel like we could talk for a really long time, but I do want to, I do want to get to the the closer questions here. Um, So this is kind of the fun speed round at the end to get to know you a little bit better and cover some some other other topics. Uh, First one is, is there anything you would encourage folks listening to follow up with or explore in more depth on their own time? Um, maybe critical race theory and cultural appropriation. Yeah. Awesome. Mm -hmm. And what's a positive change you've made in your life in the past year that you think folks listening should try? Um, don't shrink yourself to the comfort of others. Like if there's something that you think is very important, um, that you'd like to advocate for, don't shrink just because you might be uncomfortable because I was very uncomfortable talking about race for a little while. And I kind of shrunk in environmental organizations. And it wasn't until I was furloughed and alone that I realized how much shrinking I was doing. And I wasn't being true to myself. So I would encourage people to be true to themselves, listen to that inner voice that's telling them, you know, what's right and wrong and what's just and really listen to it and advocate for the things that 
that they care about. Awesome. And uh, if you're cooking for somebody and you want to make them feel loved, what are you going to make them? Mm, I would make them soul food. There are ways to make it vegan. I'm not vegan. Um, but yeah, I would make them soul food because that's my people's food. So I would try to find a healthier way to make them maybe some collard greens and like mac and cheese and all the food that I grew up on. Cause soul food, like it says in its name, it's, it's for the soul. Awesome. And, uh, what ingredient could you not live without? Paprika and beets. I love beets, like beets. They have this taste that's just like the earth. Like I just love beets so much. 100% uh, to both of those. I think a good, having a good smoked paprika around just, it ups your game in the kitchen. And yeah, I've, I've come to beets later in life, but now they're, they're great and they're really good for you and they're really versatile and yeah, hundred (laughs) percent. So, so good. Uh, What is your least favorite thing to waste? Mm, My least favorite thing to waste. Plastic. It irks me. Like, I mean, I hate when I get, I don't know if this is the way this question is supposed to go, but it irks my soul because every now and again, especially going grocery shopping, like we can't always bring our own bags into the stores with COVID. And I kind of hate when I am like, Oh crap, I need a bag. And yeah, and it makes me feel bad, but of course I recycle it. So yeah. Yeah. And uh, what is your go-to karaoke song? No scrubs by TLC. Wow. That is a classic. (laughs) Good, good call there. Uh, and who's somebody you admire tremendously and what do you admire about them? Oprah. Um, I love Oprah. I just love listening to her story and the way that she's able to elevate the platforms of so many other people. And that's what I want to do with my work. And that's really inspired me to create the Intersectional Environmentalist Council because with her, it's just really cool seeing the way that she advocates for so many different people and allows them to have their own platforms. Like even Dr. Oz, Dr. Phil, like all of these people got their start with Oprah. And I'm not saying that I'm going to be Oprah or like Oprah, but I could only hope to, you know, it's not just about me, even though I might be the spokesperson for IE, my biggest dream is to like have each of our council members and just uplift the voices of young activists and like mentor them and give them a platform so there can be more people in the world doing this work. Amazing. So much respect for that. Uh, yeah, we, I love that idea. Just, um, uplift, motivate, inspire others. Like what a, what a great legacy to leave behind. Um, and what, finally, what are you grateful for this week? Hmm, I'm very grateful for, hmm. I'm very grateful for my support system. I have a lovely support system. It's not always easy. I'm from Missouri, living in California. I don't have a lot of family here, but I'm very appreciative of the people that I know that uplift me and that I, you know, try my best to uplift as well. And I'm just, I'm so grateful to have very genuine connections with people and to make those connections with other people. I think when you're so wrapped up in activism work, I I just don't have time to like be fake, I guess, because I have no energy. So I'm just being myself wholeheartedly. And I'm very thankful for those reciprocal relationships with people where I can just be the full essence of myself and they can be the fullness of themselves and we can have support. And that's something I'm very, very grateful for. What a touching note to end on. Leah Thomas, this has been a real joy. Thank you so much for joining us today. Where can folks learn more about you and the work that you do? 
Thanks for having me. Um, you can follow me on Instagram at Green Girl Leah or also on Instagram at Intersectional Environmentalist and our website, intersectionalenvironmentalist.com. Awesome. And we'll have links to everything we talked about today in the show notes and on our content website, thewholecarrot.com, where this episode will live. Leah Thomas, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a, it's been a delight. Thank you.